A witness. So wherever you are, if you're a fearful, you know, reluctant witness, maybe, maybe the Lord would take you today and just move you along this path so that you might be a faithful witness of your Savior and Lord. And do so because you love Him. Because He's loved you and He's at work in you. And so let me highlight three things that we can see, I think, in Stephen's life that help, will help us grow to be better witnesses. And one is, well, I'll just mention all three of them. It has to do with reflecting Jesus' character, considering God's glory and commendation in Jesus, and then also remembering Jesus' forgiveness. All right. So the first thing, reflecting Jesus' character. Remember, now, just kind of reviewing from last week, Stephen has been dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And why? They'd gotten into a dispute. And Stephen had been talking about the law of Moses, the law of God in the temple. And he understood it rightly, how it was fulfilled in Christ. But they were placing their confidence in the temple and not in Jesus who fulfilled everything with regard to the temple. And so they accuse Stephen of blasphemy. And these people drag him before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And now what I want you to notice in verse 15 of chapter 6. If you go there and you look in your Bible, and your Bible's in verse 15. So you have to imagine 70 theologians. They know the Bible really well. Better than you, perhaps. And, and you're on trial, so to speak. And they're all looking at you and asking you all kinds of questions. And they're furious with you, as we'll see. And you know what they see when they see Stephen? Verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I just find that astounding because you know what? You put me in front of 70 theologians or asking me hard questions, the last thing you're going to see on my face is this angelic look. I'm going to be nervous. I'm going to be sweating. I'm going to have a frown. I'm going to be discouraged. I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to say, woe is me. I'm out of here. That's, that's going to be my face. But yet, Stephen's face was like that of an angel. Well, that certainly asks or leads us to ask another question. What does an angel look like? <laughs> Right? Well, no, get it out of your head. Not that chubby little angelic creature with wings. No, not that. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit has inspired Luke to write this. Because we're meant to recall Moses. Something about Moses. And I think it's kind of fitting. Because if, if the people there were saying to him that he was against the law of Moses, think of it this way. In Exodus 34, Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he meets with God 40 days and 40 nights. He's enshrouded in the glory of God and when he comes down the mountain carrying the stone tablets, remember what the people saw? They saw the glory of God reflected in the face of Moses. There was something otherworldly. It wasn't normal. And I think that's what we're to understand from this. You know, his face was like that of an angel. There was a glory. There was a beauty. 
there was something celestial, something that just didn't fit inside that room, but something from heaven that came down and just saturated his face. I can't help but think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Stephen, in some way, was reflecting externally, outwardly, the glory of the God that he proclaimed. Well... You know what my point is? Now, this is what I want you to take away from this. If you and I are to be winsome witnesses for Jesus, you need to ask yourself, what do people see on your face? What do people see on your countenance? Do you, are you one of those people that always go around with this grouchy look? Are, are you one of those people that just always, you know, depressed, you know, look on your face? And if that's so, why would anybody want to approach you and say, tell me about this gospel that you preach and that you love so much, because I can see it's all over your face. You look grouchy again. No. But let's not stop there. Because, see, what shows up on our face is really the product and the effect, the fruit of what's inside of us and what's inside of our heart. And how the Holy Spirit is working His grace and His Word in us. So, outwardly, we're to reflect Christ. But inwardly, what does Luke tell us? He uses the word full several times in chapter 6 and also in chapter 7 verse 55. In chapter 6 verse 5, Stephen is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, he's described as full of grace and power. In verse 10 of chapter 6, you know, it talks about how he possesses wisdom. In chapter 7 verse 55, he is full of the Holy Spirit. See, the reason that it shows up externally in his life is because internally he's been filled. He's full of this grace of God. He's full of the wisdom. He's full of the Spirit. It's a reality that's in him and certainly it's to be displayed outwardly. So don't go around trying to get something outward in your life if it's not inwardly true in you. And so, it says that he's full of grace in verse 8. Now, what is grace? Well, we've talked about grace here a lot. And rightly so. It's God's unmerited, undeserved favor in Christ toward sinners. But you know, there's another nuance to the word grace. It's not always having to do with his unmerited favor toward sinners. But... Grace also, in the scripture, can describe symmetry, elegance, beauty, loveliness, or as G. Campbell Morgan said, sweetness. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, there is something attractive about a witness who is 
whose life is shaped by the sweetness and the loveliness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. To be full of grace. And so you ask yourself, what kind of witness am I? Am I the kind of witness that radiates what's true inside of me, this this sweetness and loveliness of Jesus? You see, grace not only pays for your sin so that your sins are forgiven freely through the work of Christ, grace also changes your character. Grace ought to change your personality, should I even say. And some of you don't like that. You know, you've had those conversations with your spouse, and they say, when will you change? Well, that's just the way I am. That's the way I will always be. Oh, no. Do you not know that this gospel, this spirit that's working in you is changing you from one degree of glory to another so that you are not the same? You are not yet what you will be when you see Him in all His glorious grace and splendor. But you and I ought to be experiencing change, glorious change in our lives. So that's in Stephen. But notice also he possesses in verse 10 wisdom. So the people in the synagogue oppose him, but they couldn't prevail against him because he possessed his wisdom from the Lord. And the Lord Jesus in Luke 21 told his disciples that when they were to be delivered up to the synagogues and prisons, that he would give them a mouth and wisdom which none of their adversaries would be able to withstand or contradict. And so here's, this is being fulfilled in their lives. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the discernment, the spiritual insight into God's Word that is applied well. Okay? There are people who know God's Word and they memorize perhaps long portions of Scripture, but they do not know how to apply it. But if you are able to take the Word of God and apply it well in various circumstances, you are considered a wise person. So here's Stephen. Isn't that what he did with his message that we considered last week? He took the Word of God. He took the Word of God, and without any notes, he didn't have his Bible... He didn't have his smartphone and said, hold on, let me look up redemptive history as he, as he went through you know, all this redemptive history. He, no notes, no Bible. He rehearsed redemptive history and he knew what to pull out of all that history in the Old Testament and how to apply it to his audience. Now that is wisdom. You see what wisdom presupposes? It presupposes you know the Word of God. There is no wisdom if you don't know the Word of God. So, someone says, well, you know what? I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm a Christian, but I don't read the Bible. That's a false claim. It's a false claim. You see, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth who will guide us into all truth. And so... What we need then, if we are to be faithful, winsome witnesses for Jesus, we need to reflect Him in our outwardly, but also we need to pray that the grace of the gospel 
and the wisdom of the word that we immerse ourselves in would work in us and then outside for the world to see. It's got to begin within us. So will you pray? We make this your first step, all right? I'm asking you, pray today that you would reflect inwardly and outwardly the wisdom and the grace of the gospel that has saved you and is changing you so that you might be, for King Jesus, a better witness. Would you pray that? Secondly, I think another thing we need to keep in mind is consider God's glory and commendation in Jesus. So jump ahead to chapter 7, verse 54. In chapter 7, verse 54. After Stephen's message, how did the Jewish leaders react? They were furious. You know, he just, you know, he concluded his message and he says, remember we looked at this last week, you stiff-necked, you know, people. I mean, he said, he basically, he turned the tables on them. He is judging the those who are so-called judges. And he's saying, you know, you, you've not understood the law of God. You've not understood Moses. You've not understood Abraham. You've not understood Joseph. You've not understood the temple. You know, so they're furious. They're but look how it says, how it's described in verse 54. They ground their teeth. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. When was the last time you ground your teeth? Probably when you were sleeping. <laughs> Some of us do that, right? And you know, there's this gnashing, this grinding of your teeth. When you grind your teeth, this is just a symbolic way of saying they were furious. I mean, it was so much, there's anger was so deep in them that it just affected their jaw. And they started to grind their teeth. You see, the message that Stephen spoke struck a chord. It brought conviction. It hit home. But it didn't bring conversion, did it? Let me just give you a parenthetical thought. Have you ever been convicted by the Holy Spirit? You're doing something you know you should not be doing. So, And God in His mercy is convicting you. And there are times when you are convicted and you feel it. You feel the weight of it. You feel the sharpness of it. You know, it's living an active Word of God piercing into your soul. And there are times you repent and you humble yourself. You repent and you believe in the Gospel again. But there are other times you say, God, stop it. I don't want to hear it. And you're furious at God for doing a kindness in your life. Well, this is what happens with the Sanhedrin. They're furious. They're resentful. When really, it was a mercy of God to be told what they were told. Now, when you have 70 theologians grinding their teeth at you... Ready to stone you. Uh, what's your default mode? What are you going to do? I, I know what I do. I'd say, I, excuse me, I'm leaving. I'm going, you know, I am going to retreat. I am going to go to my cowardly self and I'm going to leave. That, that would be me. All right. But 
what keeps a person like Stephen? What keeps a person from retreating in the face of opposition? You're sharing the gospel with a co-worker, with a friend, with a neighbor, and they ridicule you, they belittle you, they make fun of you, and they say, how can you be so anti-intellectual? Right? And right in the moment, you want to say, oh, it's time for me to leave. But what keeps you there? What keeps you persevering? I just find it fascinating what keeps Stephen there is a vision of the glory of God. The vision of the glory of God and seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look in verse 55. It says that Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Now, keep in mind, this wasn't taking place outdoors. It wasn't like they were in the park. And, you know, it's all the, the clouds part, you know, the sun come through. No, no, it wasn't that kind of experience. They were indoors, most likely, right? And, and no one else saw this. No one, and no, nobody, no, none of the Sanhedrin members saw this. It was just Stephen. It's just the, the roof were not there. And he has this vision of heaven. And he sees the glory of God. Just as Moses did. Just as Isaiah did. He sees something of the glory of God. Listen, you know, and we've talked about this in the past, and glory in Hebrew comes from the word kabod, that means weight, weight, significance. Now in Greek it's doxa, yeah? but, but I, I just find it fascinating that what he sees is the weightiness of God. Now, go to the next slide, see if it's still there. This is for the children, all right? Not for your adults. Adults, you can ignore this. That is a chameleon, all right? Now, the wonderful thing about a chameleon is that it, it can you know, adapt to its surroundings, right? We, you know, it, it changes, right? But what else about a chameleon do you know? Look, I, you, I think you can notice its eyes. What is it about its eyes? Can you tell me? Up and down, right? A chameleon has this ability. It could be looking, right, down and looking at, you know, something he's going to eat over there and looking up at something he's going to eat up there. And both of those images, two different objects, are registered in the brain. And the brain can handle it. You know, our brain can't handle that. (laughs) It's just fascinating. Now, why am I telling you about a chameleon? Because I needed a little bit of humor in the middle of this? No. No. When you're in front of somebody and you're sharing the gospel and they're belittling you or they're like Stephen going to stone you, you know the temptation is? To focus on them. To focus on their words. To think that's the most important thing. That's the most significant thing. That which they are telling you, those bad things about you. And if we only had eyes to see the glory of God at the same time. If we could only see the person that we're sharing the gospel with and say, tell them the truth and share Jesus with them. But at the same time, keep our eyes on the glory of God. 
Because that has more significance, that has more weight than anything else that they can say to you. But do you believe that? Is that what you long for? Is that why you're there to share with them for the glory of God that belongs to you and that you will behold one day with all clarity? See, if we are not possessed of this vision of the glory of God, then we will make too much of what others think or say of us. And so we need this such a vision that has more weight, more kabod, God, His glory, His majesty, His grace poured out for you. And so there's a longing for glory, but, but there's something else in that vision that Stephen sees. In verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here's the glory of God that's displayed before him. And he sees Jesus, whom he describes as the Son of Man. Do you know, that title, Son of Man, was one of Jesus' favorite descriptions or titles of himself. That's how he would describe himself as the Son of Man. And it comes from Daniel 7, the passage that we read as we commenced the worship service this morning. And there the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is a picture of God. And what does the Ancient of Days do? Gives the Son of Man a kingdom and a glory and rule and dominion. He's saying this is divine. And when Jesus is before the high priest, when He's on trial... When Jesus is asked the question by the high priest, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest says, What further witnesses do we need? See, Jesus was claiming divinity. And so they wanted to accuse Him, rightly so. They were accusing Him of blasphemy, being divine. So, so when the Sanhedrin hears Stephen not only talk about this vision of the glory of God, but says, when they hear Stephen talk about Jesus as the Son of Man, what do they do? They cover their ears. They put their fingers in their ears and they start to yell like three-year-olds. Can you imagine this? Seventy men, august, dignified. (laughs) Dignified men. They all cover their ears. Blah, blah, blah. I don't hear you. I don't hear you. I don't hear you. Kids, you ever do that with your siblings, brother and sister? Yeah? No? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's it's almost humorous, this sight. And so what kept Stephen persevering was his vision of God's glory that included Jesus standing. And this is what's intriguing about this verse, right? It's intriguing. Standing at the right hand of God. Why? Because normally, after Jesus' ascension, we talk about him being seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. Why do we talk about Him being seated? Why? Because to be seated means that He has finished the work of redemption. It's completed. And He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. No more work to be done. But here Jesus is standing. Why? And commentators have multiple suggestions. (laughs) Let me give you two. One is... Jesus is standing, and Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God as a way of welcoming Stephen. 
Jesus knows that Stephen is going to die and be stoned. And it's as if Jesus is there reaching out for him. Stephen, I'm waiting for you. Come. It's his welcome. The other possibility is that Jesus is standing because he's acting as an advocate for Stephen. In Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus said this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So maybe in light of that verse... What we find is that Jesus stands and pleads Stephen's case. You've got to imagine this. Stephen is in a human courtroom, right? The Sanhedrin. They're judging him. They're, they're going to find him you know, guilty. They're going to condemn him. They're going to stone him. And here's Jesus. Stephen sees his vision of Jesus standing. And if he is his advocate, his defender. What does he see? He sees that Jesus is there before the Father as if he's saying, Father, they're condemning him down there in that courtroom. But in this heavenly courtroom, before you, O judge of all the earth, do you not know, do you not seen that I have taken his sin upon myself. I have given him my righteousness and he is my son. He is mine. He's to be commended, not condemned. He's to be accepted and not tossed away. If we get hold of that glorious vision, when you're talking with someone and they ridicule you and you want to retreat, what you need, what you and I need to hear is the commendation that goes on in heaven for you. That you, though you might be condemned by somebody else, you are commended by your Savior and Lord who is your advocate. You see... It's as if Jesus says, Stephen, you are mine. You are mine. I have given my life for you at the cross. I shed my blood for you. You are accepted. You are loved. And I think if we rehearse the gospel and catch a vision of the glory of the gospel will lead us so that we're not paralyzed by what others think or say of us because God's opinion matters more. It has more weight. Do you believe that? That it has more weight than the, what others think of you? To the degree we internalize the gospel, that we are eternally loved and accepted by God in Christ, to that degree we are willing to be witnesses for Jesus. And so, you come back to the question, what kind of witness are you? Are you a witness you know, that reflects the character of Jesus? Because you've internalized that grace more and more and it's reflected in your life. You know, do you possess that wisdom that comes from the Word of God? And are you thinking of the gospel, of what Jesus says about you as he stands at the right hand of God for you? And finally, remember Jesus' forgiveness. In verses 59 and 60, we see the Sanhedrin. They act like an angry mob. They rush 
and they overpower Stephen. They drag him outside of the city because they're following the rules, you know. They're following the law. Right? That's important for them. And they stone him. And the first ones to stone him are the ones who are witnesses against Stephen. Now, you notice what they do. They take off their cloaks, their tunics. Why do they do that? That's important because they lay their tunics where? At the feet of the one named Saul, who later becomes the apostle Paul. The reason they do is because stoning somebody is no easy task. It's not like they had, you know, a 50-pound boulder they just picked up and crushed Stephen with. That's a lot of work, a lot of stones to throw. And so they take off their tunic so that they would be unencumbered for this task of condemning and killing him. And what's amazing is Stephen's response. As he's being pummeled by the stones, he prays to the Lord. Words that are very similar to what Jesus uttered on the cross of Calvary. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I just want to point out that he knows where he's going. He's not going to limbo. He's not going to purgatory. He's going to be with the Lord. To be absent his body, but his spirit would be with the Lord. And falling to his knees as he's being pummeled by stones and bloodied and great pain. You know what comes out of his mouth? Words of grace that simply seem incredible to us. Lord Jesus, he prays. Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. Do you see the difference the gospel ought to make in us? He's echoing Jesus' words from the cross, and he asks the Lord to forgive these, his accusers, these people who are stoning him. Do you understand what grace does to you? Would take you when every fiber in your being wants revenge, wants to spew hate, wants to cower in fear, but yet he prays. This is what grace does to us. In the very depth of our being, it changes us because we understand. We we understand that we've been, we're people who have received forgiveness and mercy from the Lord who took upon our, Himself our sin. And so we understand that we give mercy too because of our Lord who's given it to us. And He prays this for them. This is simply astounding. See, the forgiveness of the gospel must shape our witness. The mercy of the gospel must shape our witness. I just finished reading a novel called Island of the World by Michael O'Brien. Initially, it takes place in the Balkans, Second World War. And it's a story of Joseph Lasta. And you can imagine Second World War, the whole region, the Balkan region, uh, torn and destroyed. And when he's 12 years old, he's, he's caught up in all this, this warfare and violence, and his family and his friends are murdered. His village and his world is just destroyed. And, and he basically wanders around for years, not knowing who he is, trying to find out you know, how to live in the midst of all that. When he's 20 years old or so, he uh, finds and he gets a job in the university. He marries, but because he's an intellectual, 
he is arrested by the communists. And he's placed in an island prison uh, called Goli Otak. It's a, it's a real place. Uh, you can look it up. It's a barren island prison. And that prison was also a labor camp. And so the prisoners would labor in the stone quarry. And while he was there, not only was he tortured and left virtually dead, uh, but he saw several of his fellow prisoners that were cruelly beaten and murdered. He manages to escape from this island prison. And for, and for years, he wanders around different parts of Europe, and he makes it to America. All right, fast forward till he's about 70-some years old. He leaves America. The war in Yugoslavia is over, and he returns to Zagreb in Croatia. All right, that's where he's from, in Croatia. And he's outside a hotel in an outdoor cafe. He's having coffee, and next to him, seated, seated at another table, are two men, a bit older than he, and they're having a conversation, and he eavesdrops on their conversation. And he realizes after a while that these, are, these two men are the same two guards that killed his fellow prisoners. Back when he was in prison, he had nicknamed these two guards, because he didn't know his name, he nicknamed them Snake and Cockroach. He is so disturbed by that because he had thought he had dealt with all these feelings of rage and anger. He goes back to his hotel room. He can't sleep because this flood of rage and anger and fear and hatred overcome his soul. He doesn't sleep. On the following morning, he goes to an, an antique shop and he buys a pistol with bullets. The pistol still shoots. And then he goes to a masonry shop and he purchases a single block of yellow-white limestone, 12 inches square, 3 inches thick. Now why? Because that was the kind of slab they would quarry at Goli Otak, that prison. He goes to the hotel where these two prison guards are lodging. He looks around, he says, how do I find these guys, you know? I can't say, hey, we're a snake and cockroach. Well, he finds them in the cocktail lounge, and they're talking. He goes into the lounge, and he sits at a table next to them, and he waits till there's no one else there. Now, you need to know, he put in a knapsack, that limestone slab, and he put the pistol in his jacket. And he walks over to the table where these two men are seated. He takes out the slab and he drops it on the table. A big boom! So you can imagine these two men are just surprised and shocked. And then the men just stare at him. He pulls the pistol out of his jacket and he says in a low voice, I am from Goli Otak. Takes out his pistol, he points it at Snake, and he says, This is for what you did to Gunoslav. Pulls the trigger, bang. He takes the pistol, points it to the other man, Cockroach. This is for what you did to Dalibor. Bang. The two men sat in amazement, paralyzed, didn't know what to do. The bang wasn't the bang of the gun. It was Joseph, 
who had whispered the word bang in their faces. Then he took out from his pocket a wooden crucifix and he placed it in front of Snake. And he took out another wooden crucifix and placed it in front of Cockroach. And he said, you need to repent. You see what he wrestled with? He wrestled with with his feelings of revenge and anger and hatred, but it was the cross that prevailed in his life. Brothers and sisters, you and I, if you are here and you're wondering what kind of witness am I, ask yourself, is there resentment in my soul? Is, am I, can somebody describe me as an unforgiving person? Is there not mercy in your soul? Because if there's no mercy, if you've not been gripped by the grace and the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus, how in the world can you extend mercy to those who hate God and hate you? And not be overcome by revenge. You and I will never be witnesses of Jesus if we are controlled by anger and resentment in an unforgiving spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, can I get a witness? A witness that wants to reflect Jesus from the inside out, who loves the gospel, hears the gospel, is the music that dominates in and plays through your head more than the ugly voices that you hear around you. Would you pray for Las Tierras? That not only as individuals, but as a church, we would be this kind of witness for our king. What kind of church was Stephen a part of? You know, it wasn't just him as an individual. He was part of a church. He was part of a church that encouraged this, that prayed for this. Would we do the same? Little by little, step by step, moving out from our excuses, our reluctance, and saying, for you, Jesus, because of your love for me and your mercy, I will speak for you. Because I love you more than I love my life. I love the kingdom more than the here and now. I love my Savior more than my own skin. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us such witnesses? You know that in us, it doesn't come naturally. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would produce this in us and that you, on that glorious day, as we see you and we see the glory of God, not simply in our mind's eye, but for real, and not simply in creation, in another people stamped with your glorious image. But we would see your glory. But until that day, Lord, help us to rehearse the glorious gospel and to tell it to others. Because you are worthy, O Lord. You are worthy of being praised and adored for all eternity and by all the world. For every soul here in El Paso and around the world. Oh, accomplish this even through weak vessels like us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.